This last week, many people were shocked and outraged by the sentence that Brock Turner received following his conviction for sexual assault against a woman at Stanford University. He was facing up to 14 years in state prison. Instead, he received a sentence of less than six months in the county jail and and probably will be released within three months. What people are offended by is the fact that a person convicted on three felony counts stemming from a sexual assault apparently received extremely lenient treatment from the judge because he was able to present evidence that, in many ways, he was an upstanding young man, no prior prior criminal record, a top student in high school, an all-American swimmer at Stanford, and a potential Olympian. Many friends and family members and teachers who had known him for years testified to his good character. Now, of course, it's the case that in our legal system, a judge does weigh a person's character and past history in sentencing. Yet we all recoil at the idea that a person can effectively escape significant punishment for a serious violent crime simply because of their supposed good character. There's a basic principle of justice that that convictions for certain offenses necessarily require a substantial punishment, regardless of that person's upstanding character or prior good conduct. But it's interesting that one of the things that I frequently encounter as a priest is meeting someone at a wedding or funeral reception who, upon reaching the confidence-imparting stage of drunkenness, will say something to me along the lines of, Well, Father, I don't go to church anymore, but I try to be a good person. Or, I don't really believe in God, but I try to do the right thing. When persons say things like that, they are ultimately trying to justify themselves. They are looking for some assurance that they are okay, that the way they are living their life is good enough to get to heaven, even if only by the skin of their teeth. But the problem is that many people like this who aren't practicing the Christian faith, and unfortunately some who are, including many Catholics, want to believe that God's judgment is something like a financial audit. Sins on one side of the ledger and good works on the other, like credits and debits. And they are weighed against each other. If the good works outweigh the sins, well then, voila, the person can go to heaven. And it's so it's hoped that a lifetime of infrequent church attendance is outweighed by volunteering for the junior league, or that that one time a person cheated on their marriage is somehow canceled out by the fact that they charitably tolerate annoying Aunt Edna or crazy Cousin Eddie at Thanksgiving dinner every year. Now, as Catholics, we do believe in the salvific value of good works, which is denied, for example, by Calvinists who believe in predestination or Baptists and evangelicals who hold to once saved, always saved. But in our Catholic faith, good works do not of themselves earn us entry into heaven. Rather, good works strengthen us against the temptation of sin that would derail us from the path to heaven that was begun in our baptism. Or if we do sin, the merits of our good works will give us the grace to repent promptly and seek sacramental absolution. We must keep in mind the words of St. Paul to the Ephesians, because of the works of the law, no one has been justified. Or as he says to the Galatians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and this is not from you. It is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one may boast. In baptism, we are incorporated into the life of grace that flows from the Most Holy Trinity, and we are strengthened in that grace by the continued reception of the sacraments. Good works, then, only have merit within the context of that life of grace. They do not generate the life of grace by themselves. Unfortunately, believing in the financial audit model of salvation leads people to deny the reality of mortal sin. As the Catechism teaches us, mortal sin results in the loss of charity and the privation of sanctifying grace, that is, of the state of grace. If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from God's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. Some people bristle at the idea that one mortal sin, even if unrepented of, should damn a person to hell. I've had many people tell me that this seems unfair, but I always say to them, this is exactly the way it would work in any personal relationship that you have. Imagine if you had a friend who you have enjoyed a long and fruitful relationship, but that friend did something to you that was a complete betrayal of you, wantonly insulted you, or broke a confidence, or hurt you seriously in some way. Now, if that person was later sorry for what they did, you might well forgive them, and the relationship could be repaired and would continue. But imagine if the friend said to you, look, I did what I did, and I'm not sorry for that. But you should still be my friend because of all of the good things I've done for you in the past and because of all of the great times we've had together. Of course, you would reject that person. No one conducts their relationships on the, on the, the lines of the financial audit model. Yet somehow people expect admission to heaven to work like that. It's perhaps because we think of God mechanistically, tallying up sins and good works like a cosmic banker handling deposits and credits. Instead of conceiving of our connection to God as a personal relationship born of his grace. If we sin mortally, we break the bond of charity with God. And unless we repent of that by seeking absolution, it doesn't matter what came before or what comes after. We've left the state of grace. The only thing that will bring us back is repentance and the grace of the sacrament of confession, not any good work or series of good works. In the first reading, we see Nathan rebuking King David. Although David was God's chosen one, he had sinned gravely. He had engineered the death of Uriah, one of his generals, so that he could steal Uriah's wife after he had tasted relations with her. He was a murderer and an adulterer. It didn't matter that David was a great king who had united all of the tribes of Israel. It didn't matter that he had slain Goliath. The one thing, the only thing that could save David at this point was his confession. I have sinned against the Lord. Because of his repentance, not because of any work, David was restored to fellowship with God. The good news is that no matter, is that while no manner of good work will cancel the effects of mortal sin, we have the promise of Christ that no sin is too big to be forgiven. Christ, the good shepherd, desires to forgive our sins. Indeed, even our desire to repent and to receive the sacrament of reconciliation is the result of the promptings of God's grace. Because of that, we have the surety that if we approach Jesus contritely in the confessional, we can, like the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet with her tears, be forgiven no matter what we have done. No heroic deeds are required. Just simple contrition 
and a firm resolve to sin no more. Further, in receiving the sacrament, we do not just receive the forgiveness of our sins. Rather, as Christ said about the sinful woman, because much was forgiven her, she was able to love much. We receive grace on top of the forgiveness of our sins each time we make a confession worthily. Of course, we would never sin simply for the sake of receiving that grace. But in the mysterious economy of God's mercy, the graces we receive and the sacrament of confession help us to live a life more free from sin and more filled with good works going forward, hopefully even on to eternal life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.